Hi, and welcome to Macro Matters. My name is Stephanie Kelly, and together with my co-host Paul Diggle, we'll be guiding you through the complex world of politics, economics, and markets. This week, we're going to be delving into UK politics, with a particular eye on the outcome of the recent Scottish parliamentary elections and also the local English elections, and in particular, what's come onto the agenda as a result, Scottish independence. Both the SNP and the Scottish Greens stood on a clear commitment to an independence referendum within the next parliamentary term. And both of us made clear that the timing of a referendum should be decided by a simple majority of MSPs in the Scottish Parliament. So in no way can a referendum be described as just a demand of me or of the SNP. It is a commitment made to the people by a clear majority of the MSPs who have been elected to our national parliament. It is the will of the country. And there we heard Nicola Sturgeon making the case for Scottish independence in the wake of the Scottish elections. And this is a question investors are increasingly asking. Will Scotland leave the UK? What does that look like? What does it mean from an investor perspective? Today, we'll delve into the key waymarks, political and macro outlook on this topic. But it is worth saying up front that we are going to be coming at this from the perspective of economists answering investor questions and not representing a kind of a formal company view from Aberdeen Standard Investments. So to help me get to grips with these big questions, I'm delighted to be joined again by our Macro Matters regular, Luke Bartholomew. Welcome, Luke. Hey, Steph. Thanks for having me again. So let's kick off, maybe if we zoom out a little first and talk about the pre-election context. So we're past Brexit. What do you, I guess, how would you define the UK political environment that we find ourselves in this year, maybe in comparison to pre-COVID, pre-Brexit? How do you define it? Uh, I I guess we're still not quite post-COVID yet, still going through COVID. And I think my preferred reading of the election, and I'll be interested to know whether you agree with this, but it, it was largely a vote of support for incumbent parties. So we saw the Conservatives doing well in England, Labour in Wales, and the SNP in Scotland. And to an extent, I think that is a vote of confidence in the vaccine rollout. I think there are questions to be asked about the quality of the whole COVID response, including timings of lockdown, of course, over the entirety of um, the last 18 months or so. And I think those questions actually stand for all regions of the UK. But on the on the virus rollout itself, that has been, I think, a relative success. And, and that's what's been reflected. So I think that is largely the dynamic that's driving politics at the moment. And then from there, I think we are set up for some relatively punchy growth numbers this year. And that's partly because last year was so bad to put it bluntly and so there's a fair bit of bounce back to come from that but you know the kind of growth numbers that we're looking at some of the strongest perhaps even the strongest in the post-war period I think will potentially also be quite an important aspect of the political landscape and could change some of the narratives. So that's super interesting Luke in particular because I've obviously revealed my own preference to believe that we are post-COVID we're obviously very very much not post-COVID but we are kind of post Brexit, you know, insofar as, yes, there's ongoing uncertainty about the Northern Irish Protocol, you know, which is very consistent with what we've talked about in this podcast before, that 
Brexit kind of never ends in terms of the uncertainties that are created through it and the ongoing kind of relationship evolution that will happen between the UK and Europe. But I guess politically, it's interesting to see, you know, there's a lot made of kind of the Hartlepool local election, which, you know, for listeners who aren't super close to UK politics or aren't based in the UK, um, is a traditional really strong Labour Party stronghold that in this case went to the Conservatives and people saw this as this really symbolic change, right? And I think in some ways I'm really apprehensive about using local elections to extrapolate up to national support because it can be in some countries, you know, local issues that dominate, you know, personalities, potholes, that kind of stuff. However, I do think this is a good example of where through Brexit and through the COVID responses, you said, Luke, they've been able to kind of take up a lot more of the ground of UK politics. You know, you've got a Conservative Party that is theoretically conservative, but it's also, you know, has pretty progressive green policies compared to lots of other countries with more left-wing governments, for example. They may not shout about it as much, but they in reality do. And I think what that's done to the Labour Party is it's really limited its, its wiggle room within UK politics, right? It's it's losing ground, it's lost ground in, in Scotland and it's clearly struggling to define itself in a world where increasingly former Labour strongholds, the sort of quote-unquote red wall, have been eroded through Brexit and through what is seen as, at the moment, quite a positive COVID response. Yeah, I guess an, an, an interesting question is like whether the Labour Party sees itself squeezed on the left by the Green Party. And if you look closely, yeah. you could arguably see some of those dynamics uh, at work in this election. And, you know, I know you've talked on this podcast before about German politics, and that seems to have been what's happened in Germany, right? That the German left have been squeezed by the Greens. So perhaps that's another dynamic to be looking at closely that, Labour sort of loses what you might call the cultural right in the red rule to the Tories due to sort of identities having been shaken up by Brexit and then loses on the progressive wing because it's losing green voters that way. Yeah, I think that's a, a super interesting element. So it becomes like, where does Labour sit in a, in a world where increasingly kind of, you know, relatively centrist voters are more comfortable voting conservative. I guess the other question which we can't know yet is the fallout post-COVID because obviously you're starting to see it a little bit in the media, the kind of assessment of how the government really performed, et cetera, et cetera. And it depends on which side of the media you read as to whether that's really glowingly positive or, or more negative. But I do think, you know, you often see in other countries in history that during a crisis, a government can hold up really well. And then post-crisis, they're just, you do, you know, nothing is handled perfectly in a crisis and that leads to fallout kind of later down the, the line, but that might be a number of years away before we see any of that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess there is now going to be a public inquiry, right? So potentially that throws up some interesting things now. I mean, I, I think we could spend a very long time discussing the ins and outs of the handling of the UK's COVID response. And I think there are some quite hard questions for the government to answer. I mean, pretty recent pressing ones on travel bans and the Indian variant. But my, my sense might be, you know, that actually that a lot of people might just want to move on after this. Yeah. And for all that the fact of the matter is that handling hasn't been spectacular throughout the whole course of the thing. Maybe people just want to focus on the vaccine thing, the way that that got us out of it. And that's enough to buy to buy a grace period, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll find out. And I think in the meantime, the more pressing question is is probably 
you know, above above the English border in Scotland, where increasingly there has been, I would say, since Brexit, having been based in Scotland, there have been increasing discussions about Scottish independence since Brexit took place, because Scotland was a country that voted by majority to remain um, within the EU during the Brexit referendum. And so since then, there has been kind of, if you look at the polling data, there's been a growing trend towards support for Scottish independence. Now, that's actually fallen off recently in the last number of, of months. We had seen quite a significant rise whereby a majority were in favour. Now that's much, much more mixed. But nonetheless, after the Scottish elections, as we heard at the start of this show, we saw this rise in um, at least political rhetoric and particularly the SNP publishing its roadmap for independence and saying that it's going to push forward now with pursuing Scottish independence. So I wonder, Luke, I mean, to what extent do you think the Scottish elections mattered in terms of changing this course or not? So I guess the first question is how much does it matter that the SNP didn't get an outright majority themselves. Um, yeah. but, but they obviously there is still a pro-independence majority in Holyrood through um, the co- what coalitional voting support from the Greens who are themselves also pro-independence. Um, I mean, maybe it weakens the argument a little bit at the margin. I suppose another interesting thing is, you know, that, uh, Sturgeon was asked this quite interesting question, you know, imagine this hypothetical voter that likes your handling of the pandemic but doesn't want another referendum or independence anytime soon, who should they vote for? And she responded, well, they should vote for me and the SNP with confidence that our priority will be coming back from the pandemic. So, you know, perhaps the combination of there not being an outright majority and the sense in which, you know, perhaps unionists could make an argument that the SNP were lent some votes that weren't true independence votes, that maybe that somewhat weakens the argument to push for an independent referendum anytime soon. But my sense is that, at the very least, that they will go through the motions, uh, uh, some sort of motion will pass Holyrood in favour of referendum, and then it will be in um, in the UK government's court to decide, sorry, well, perhaps one of a better phrase, but the ball will be in the court for them to decide uh, what to do next. And I wonder, Steph, what, I mean, how you think they will react, to be honest, the UK government? So that's a, a really good question. And maybe it's worth us kind of laying out again, particularly for listeners who aren't based in the UK or don't, don't follow this very closely. The SNP released this kind of roadmap to independence before the election, which was, I think, an 11 point plan. But I think it can really be boiled down to three steps. The first was get a majority in the Scottish elections. Now, as you said, they didn't get a majority, but there is a pro independence majority because the Greens are also in favour. So then the next step is um, request permission from Westminster, from the UK government to hold a referendum because under the current um legislation that's what's required the i think the broad expectation has been that the conservatives are unlikely to approve that that's what they've said at least in terms of their when they've been asked about it i think as you mentioned covid creates a sort of an interesting time element of this for investors who are thinking about this or worried about um kind of timelines for these kinds of political risks i think they nicholas surgeon has said that they wouldn't pursue it i think until the COVID crisis has ended, which we kind of take to mean probably, you know, the beginning of 2022. Essentially, we expect the COVID crisis continues to be something that is the front of mind for government. And then she had previously said that she won't wait longer than two and a half years in. So we actually do have sort of a 
a two-year window, I guess, at this point in which we would expect them to kind of move forward with this. Now, that gets to your question, Luke, which is, would the Conservative government go for a Scottish independence referendum? And obviously, at the headline level, they've said they've said that they won't, which seems like a reasonable kind of expectation for investors to have. However, for the Conservatives, if they see the writing on the wall when it comes to Scottish independence, might they actually decide to approve it at a time where they see independence support rates as relatively low? At the moment, for example, it's very, very tight. And the expectation, I think, or the hope from the Conservative Party would be that during an actual referendum, risk aversion would mean that ultimately it wouldn't pass. So I guess that's a question, Luke, because do they try and, you know, essentially, do they think it's inevitable, first of all? And then if they do think it's inevitable, do they try and actually approve it and surprise everyone when they've been saying they wouldn't approve it thus far? I think there probably is a sense that a referendum in the next five years or so is probably inevitable in their sense that they're playing for time. I mean, but there's an argument like... Is there much to be gained by playing for time? I mean, are you sort of actually fooling into an SNP trap by denying the referendum and allowing them to make an argument that, you know, this is a union without consent, without an exit? What do we have to do to get, you know, permission to be able to hold um, a referendum if, you know, majority of SNP seats in Scotland at Westminster elections, if a majority in Holyrood isn't enough, what do we have to do? And that sort of argument might mean that actually delaying it, buying time ends up hurting the unionist cause. So perhaps there is, you know, if you're the government, a reason to go a bit earlier, particularly if, you know, there is some sense that the vaccine thing went very well and there's some warm glow about, you know, it was by being part of the UK's procurement process that Scotland was able to enjoy a successful rollout and by virtue of the NHS, which is a UK-wide institution, and was able to have a successful vaccine rollout. If you're able to ha- mobilise those arguments at a time where they're sort of top of mind and so therefore not too far in the past, that might be quite powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the big the big uncertainties with all of this is investors really understanding what the machinations are of, of leadership in any political party, which is which is always really tough. So if we imagine that the Conservatives continued with the line that they've had, which is that they won't approve it. The next step in the SNP roadmap to independence had been, if they refuse, we will legislate for it in Holyrood specifically. And that throws up huge uncertainties around legality of doing so. And there's a big question mark about whether this would end up in the courts, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was where my slightly unfortunate turn of phrase that it would be back in the UK's court earlier um, comes to light (laughs) and uh yeah i mean it does seem that uh we are to some extent going down the u.s line where a lot of very political questions do end up in court of course article 50 and then proroguing of parliament during um the brexit affair all ended up in the supreme court and i think it's relatively likely that you know this would end up there as well if 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 because I don't think the UK government would cede to uh, Holyrood that it has the devolved ability to be able to legislate for its own referendum. I don't see them giving up that without a legal fine. Um, I mean, do we have a sense of how that yeah. court case would go, Stephanie? So this is kind of interesting. I mean, it, I thought it was interesting that after the Scottish elections, Conservative 
um, kind of leadership and, and key ministers like Michael Gove had come out and basically said, we don't want to go to court over this, which is kind of maybe speaks to your view, Luke, around the, the possibility that conservatives see the writing on the wall and, and have to, to kind of assent before it gets to, to the legal kind of challenge. If it did go to the Supreme Court, I mean, here it's a little bit fuzzy. It, the precedent suggests, and this is kind of based on, you know, the online legal debates that happen, that this is something that wouldn't would get turned down basically in the Supreme Court and that Westminster would would ultimately be successful. But we know from recent judgments around proroguing of parliament, for example, you can get surprise judgments. So I think that's always a potential. Maybe if we spend the last sort of five minutes then saying, because from our conversation, it feels like investors should be, you know, allowing for the strong possibility that an, an independence referendum potentially takes place in the coming years if not in the next five, or if not in the next two years, but potentially the next five or 10 as the push kind of continues. So in that case, what are the big questions you have as an economist when you look at the Scottish independence question? What are the big challenges from an economic perspective, do you think? So it's probably unsurprising to hear hear me say this, but I think the the first and most pressing is the currency question. Um, And it's sort of unsurprising that that sort of continues to be one of the most important debates in politics because it is like the most important economic thing to get right. And so far as I can see, there are three or maybe three and a half options uh, that an independent Scotland would have for its currency. One would be continue to use sterling, but outside a sterling union, uh, which might ostensibly look the same because you're still using pound coins and notes or whatever, but it is a profoundly different economic arrangement for reasons that we can get to. The second is to have their own currency. Uh, The independent Scotland can have its own central bank and issue its own currency. And the third would be to join the euro. And I suppose the half option that I alluded to there is to have um, an independent currency, but then to peg that either to sterling or the euro. And each of those options comes with uh, a number of both short and long-term challenges, uh, I think, uh, that need to be thought through quite carefully. So in the case with using sterling, but outside of a sterling union, it is important to say that um, no one could stop an independent Scotland from using pounds as, as their unit of currency, absolutely not. But it is in the gift of the UK government as to whether that occurs within a sterling union. And there is absolutely no reason to think that there would be a sterling union post-independence. So what a sterling union means is effectively that you know, you're within the monetary framework of the Bank of England and have recourse to the Bank of England's facilities. So what does it mean to, to use sterling but be outside a sterling union? Well, one, monetary policy is going to be set in London for the economic conditions of the rest of the UK without any regard to what's happening in Scotland. Now, that might not actually be as bad as it sounds economically in the short term if you think that the two countries are relatively aligned and synchronized although perhaps in time they would diverge and that would become more of an issue but i suppose there are sort of sovereignty questions about the fact that your monetary policy is being set in a different country but outside of that it's the sort of the lender of last resort facilities that come from being part of the sterling union which strike me as being the most important thing to lose. So one, there isn't a lender of last resort to your banking system, and that creates a very strong incentive for the financial sector to move to somewhere where such a lender of last resort would be. Second, 
an independent Scotland would effectively be borrowing in a new foreign currency. It wouldn't have a central bank being able to print currency notes in the unit of currency that it borrows in. And as we saw during the Eurozone crisis, that can have quite significant impacts on financial stability and spreads. So that wouldn't be the lender of last resort to the government debt market. And so this is easily missed, but I think becoming better understood that there's also like a, a final lender to the lender of last resort that exists within our current monetary architecture. And that's through the dollar swap line that all major developed central banks have with the Fed. So they're able to access dollars on demand in a crisis, as indeed they needed to during March last year, during the worst of the COVID shock. And again, uh, an independent Scotland uh, using sterling outside of sterling union wouldn't have access to that facility uh, as well. So you're losing a lot of the backups that you have to your financial sector and government debt market if you go down the route of using sterling, but outside of a sterling union. Um, in terms of uh, an independent currency, um, so the, the risk there would be that it's very likely in the short term, at least, that the market would value your new independent currency weaker than it values, say, the pound or euro at the moment. And the problem with that is if you have deposits sitting in your bank account in Scotland that are currently denominated as pounds, and there is some concern that they're going to be redenominated as the new currency, which is going to be weaker, then, of course, you take those pounds as they are at the moment and go and put them into a bank account in London or wherever else it might be, where they won't be redenominated in that weaker currency. And another word for that is bank run. You know, it is effectively withdrawing deposits uh, in Scotland and moving them to somewhere where you don't feel like it's going to be redenominated. And the other aspect of that is that all private debt arrangements would stay denominated in their current currency. So if you have at the moment in Scotland a mortgage in pounds, it will continue to be a mortgage in pounds after an independent currency is launched. It's just that you will be earning in the new currency, but having to pay your mortgage debt in sterling. And if the new currency is weaker, then that effectively increases the value of the mortgage that you have to pay off uh, as well, which is why that sort of raises the prospect of maybe you want to peg your new freely floating currency to the pound or the euro. So to avoid that risk of people pulling deposits out because they're worried of a weaker currency and the impact of the real value of debt. Well, the problem with that is, is that it requires significant credibility to keep uh, a peg of a, an exchange rate in place, a significant FX reserves and the commitment to be able to run a much, much tighter monetary policy than you might need to keep interest rates systematically higher to keep the peg in place. And it, as soon as the market sniffs that that peg might not be credible, it breaks pretty quickly. And I think there would be reasons to think that would be the case here. Could also peg to the euro, but that would have the same questions about the credibility of the peg, which brings us to the, the final option, which is joining the euro itself, which arguably an independent Scotland would be committed to do anyway, if it were to rejoin the EU, it could try to uh, negotiate an opt-out from the euro, which the EU may or may not be willing to grant, depending how generous it's feeling. But my sense is that they are becoming a lot less generous in granting those opt-outs. So in joining the euro, that probably is the most stable long-term arrangement, I would think. But the problem in the short to medium term is that there are quite strict uh, criteria that have to be met, the Maastricht or the 
convergence criteria, one of which is that your deficit needs to be less than 3% of GDP. And for an independent Scotland to be running that sort of relatively small deficit would require in the short to medium term a significant tightening in the public finances. So the transition, again, could be pretty painful and rocky. I think that's probably the clearest articulation of the options around Scottish independence that I've heard. Um, and I think goes to show that the questions that it throws up for investors and the reason why this is increasingly on the kind of horizon when it comes to investment discussions and political risk in the UK. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have left. Thank you so much, Luke, for joining us again. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. As always, to our listeners, if you have any comments on the discussion today, questions or ideas for future episodes, you can email us at macromatters at aberdeenstandard.com. In the meantime, we'll be back next week, so please join us then. Please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.